Okay, I want to welcome everybody to uh, a new series of Shurim uh, for women and anyone else who's watching uh, on Zoom uh, or who will listen uh, to the recording once it's posted. We're very excited uh, as part of the shul uh, to be able to offer this as a new, we hope, uh, my schedule and travel uh, schedule permitting uh, as a weekly shir and a weekly series. And the idea, hopefully, is to have a shir, uh, I hope, every week or as close to that as possible, and to do kind of mini-series where we take different topics and over two or three weeks uh, kind of explore them from different uh, perspectives. And over the course of the year, I think it makes sense, certainly from my perspective, although I'll be happy to get feedback from everyone who comes, um, but it makes sense to me that we perhaps alternate uh, between different practical halachic topics and perhaps different topics in Ashkafor or Avodah Hashem. Uh, I think it's important that all of us, men and women, that we're awfully always in a growth uh, orientation. It's not always easy, especially at uh, different stages of life. Uh, but if we don't learn and we don't try, then it's certainly not going to happen. So that's my long-term plan. If you ask me what's the next topic, I haven't decided yet. But it seemed, it seemed obvious, given the unique opportunities and challenges, and they're both, uh, of this coming year, that we start off with Shemitah. Uh, I don't know if I was just trying to pick the easiest, most accessible topic, I would have picked this, uh, because as we shall see, parts of this are a little bit complicated. Um, I want to make an uh, apology at the outset. I'm not making it complicated. It is complicated, but I am going to try to do my best to make it as uncomplicated as possible. We obviously aren't going to cover everything. We're not going to solve every problem or answer every question that you'll have. But I hope at the very least that uh, throughout this year, at the very least, you'll be much more, if not completely fluent, but at least familiar with ideas, with concepts, with upcoming opportunities and challenges that the next year plus uh, will present. And that way, whether I'm your local Orthodox rabbi or someone else is, uh, but you'll, you'll know even when to ask, let alone be more informed as a consumer a questioner, and what I hope to get to, Amir Tzashem, as part of next week's year, is also a gardener, or whether you do the actual gardening or you have someone coming, but uh, I think that that's something to, to focus on uh, as well. I want to take the opportunity specifically to thank Alyssa Chambray, who was so involved in coordinating this year. She texted me late last night that something at the last minute came up with one of her children, and she has a meeting uh, for one of them at 10.15, so she felt so bad after all the effort she put in, she wasn't going to be at the first year, uh, but I want to thank her in absentia. And of course, we want to thank the Platniks uh, and Shira uh, for agreeing uh, to host uh, in their beautiful home. So thank you so, so much. We appreciate that. Um, so as I mentioned just a moment ago, uh, Shemitah, in the big sense of the word, um, we talk about the agricultural Shemitah, really has two impacts. One is for the farmer. Uh, I'm not aware of any farmers in the neighborhood, but... That's where the thing, the topic which we'll discuss part of next week's year, gardening is about the closest that most of us will come uh, to farming. Uh, and again, whether you're doing it yourself or you're having a gardener come to your house, uh, that is to the extent that we need to know about what is allowed. You're allowed to water, you're not allowed to water, can you prune the de- That we please God, that'll be definitely a part of next week's year. But I thought clearly the predominant impact that Shemitah as an actual practical living halachic topic will have for everyone in the room uh, and beyond is not as a farmer, but obviously as, as a consumer, um, whether it's you know, learning how what we can buy or not buy, how we have to treat produce, uh, what restaurants we can or can't go to, the whole, you know, if Hashkafa wasn't complicated enough in Israel, now we have a new thing uh, to make us crazy. Um, and, um, you know, what happens, this perhaps we'll also have to wait till next week, what happens if, and we're going to sketch out between this week and next week, the different options that you'll see, because there are 
broadly speaking, probably three main approaches that people have uh, in, the, in the community for how to approach Shemitah produce and what they buy and what they eat. So what if you are invited to someone's house, you have relatives or friends who have a different standard, are you allowed to eat at their house? Uh, all those kind of issues, bli ayin hara, we will discuss. And if I miss something that's important to you, of course, you are invited uh, to ask. Um, I was thinking about, and I actually was just talking about with some of, uh, some of you may know the Maybrooks who live in Memshalosh now. On, uh, so Rabbi Maybrook was my chavrusa uh, many years ago, I think three Shemitah cycles ago when we both were living in New York. Um, and, I was t- and, I, and two Shemitah cycles ago when I was a rabbi in Baltimore, I didn't just learn Shemitah, I actually taught Shemitah. But to actually be a rabbi and teaching Shemitah, living in Eretz Yisrael, Ashrei Shezachinu. You know, it would be much less complicated to talk about this, you know, in Staten Island or Baltimore or Teaneck or wherever. But, you know, come on. We're here. Like, it's going to be hard, but, like, how awesome is that? Like, we actually get to live this. And even just my whole teaching and my whole mindset, my whole orientation is completely different now that I'm, it's actually something that I have to worry about myself and I'm actually, you know, responsible in the community for. So I think that's something that we should all really just... Uh, at any point during the next two weeks of Shurim, when you're worrying about things, or in the course of the next year when you're a little bit frustrated, or ah, just take a deep breath and say, wow, we're here. And the, the here thing is a big bracha, we all know, but it certainly comes with some challenges. And Shemitah uh, this year, and just in case you're wondering, even to some extent into, eight, into the eighth year, uh, is a little bit of a challenge, no, no doubt about uh, that. Um, I hope you all have a source sheet. I think there may be one or two left at the end of the table if you didn't get it. Um, every one of the areas of today's shear which we're going to talk about could have been a full shear in itself I didn't want to do anything as in depth as I naturally like to do because then we won't cover nearly enough ground and you'll all get bored because um, not everyone has the same level of interest of digging so deep as I do, I understand that but on the other hand I didn't want to be completely you know, 10,000 feet uh, up in the sky and not anchor it to any of the sources so I thought of a compromise and I put a small sampling of the sources on the sheet and I do hope that we uh, can have time to read at least some of them actually inside but I'll allude to the sources that we're quoting as we quote them and those of you who are more fluent and comfortable with text certainly you're invited to look at it while I'm teaching and you're certainly welcome uh, to keep the source sheet uh, after the shear. 98% of this year is going to be about practical halacha, but let's just start with one word of hashkafa, because such a big mitzvah, something that's so significant, we should at least understand what the deeper spiritual uh, and philosophical message of that is. And for this, I want to make reference to the opening source on your sheet, and that is the Sefer HaChinuch. There are many different theories as to what you know, God intended, what Hashem's message of Shemitah is, but the Sefer HaChinuch, for one, and he's not the only one with any opinion, but in his opinion, he actually suggests Four different, this is, sometimes we're lucky to have one accessible reason to a mitzvah. Here the Sefer Chinuch says there's actually four uplifting and spiritual messages of the Shemitah. The first thing he says, interestingly enough, is it's called in the Torah Shabbat Haaretz because it has a similar message of Shabbos. Just like Shabbos every seven days reminds us that God created the world, every seven years we take a step back and we don't do the full complement of work. Again, that's more relevant to the farmer than you and me, but nevertheless we don't do the full complement of work as a reminder that God made the world and he stopped, not only on the seventh day, but mirroring that we stop on the seventh year. If you take a look on the third line, uh, he mentions a second point, which is obviously particularly relevant to the farmer, but hopefully is a subliminal message to all of us. It's not us. Even if you're the farmer with the back-breaking burk, just like, uh, you know, there are many of us, uh, it could be any other parnasa. it's, you know, 
more dominant in the theme of agriculture and farming, but it doesn't matter if you're a lawyer or a doctor or a physical therapist or a, a nurse, right? We all work, we try to do our thing to make up our nasa, but in the end, it comes from Hashem. And one of the things that Shemitah, and, you know, so to speak, taking a step back and not even um, being able to work and having that, you know, that's a reminder of, wow, if I can survive this, clearly it's always been from Hashem. That's his second message. His third message, he says on the last line, is Midat Havatronus. The ability to walk away, to give up, right? Israelis aren't good at that because then they're worried they're going to get called a friar. Um, but just in case you're wondering, that's not a Jewish value. Sometimes it's good to be a friar. Sometimes it's good to give in. Sometimes it's good to be mevater. So again, it's not so relevant for us as non-farmers, but as you may know, and this, again, it's not because we're not farmers, we're not going to focus on this, but if you had an actual orchard or farm or something in the Torah's vision, or Shemitah, or you actually were a farmer anywhere now in Israel, the real halakha, you have to leave it, it's not just leaving it fallow, not working. Anything that grows is hefker, it's ownerless. Anyone can just walk in and take. You know, to, to have worked hard the fifth year or the sixth year and then just let people walk into your farm, into your orchard, right? that, that's a certain level of charity of being willing to, to, to let go. And last but not least, perhaps the one that's the most profound uh, is bitachon, says the Sefer HaChinuch. Right? You're not going to work for a whole year. How are you going to live? So this underscores the idea of having faith uh, and trust in Hashem. But on that note, let's ask the question, because you don't have to be a cynic, and you don't have to be in any way a, a non-believer or even a questionable believer to ask, but how am I supposed to live? I mean, come on. Again, it's, nowadays it's just an inconvenience for us to some extent, as we'll talk about. But imagine for most of human history when it was an agricultural economy. Right? How are they supposed to live? And remember, if it would be a yovel year, in the 50th year, you have back-to-back years. Year 49 and year 50. How are they supposed to live? You know, don't feel bad if you're wondering that. The Torah itself addresses that question in source number two. In Vayikra and Perkaf the Torah says, it'll be normal. You'll ask, Manochal, Bashanashvid, what are we going to eat in the seventh year? We're going to starve. So Hashem says, and the, the Pasuk continues, We have, it's one of the rare times that we have it, but we have an explicit divine promise. Hashem says, you can test me on this. Take it to the bank. I promise you that your yield in the sixth year will be significantly bigger and significantly bountiful, that you'll be able to have plenty of crops that survive into the seventh year, and if necessary, slightly beyond. So again, getting back to the topic that we saw a moment ago from the Chinuch, it's one thing to read it in Chomish. Hopefully we were in Shulan Shabbos. Hopefully we paid attention to the Kriyasa Torah. Maybe someone gave a Devar Torah about this at the Shabbos table. But, you know, that's talking the talk. To walk the walk. To trust that bracha. And just not work in the seventh year. That's unbelievable. But it's not like Hashem didn't realize, the Torah didn't realize this is a thing. The Torah acknowledges that you would have that anxiety. And the Torah says, you can rely on me, I promise. The problem nowadays, and when we get, you know, in a few minutes when we get to the whole issue of Heter Mechira and things nowadays. So part of the issue is that the general assumption, according to most poskim, is that we don't live in an era in which we can rely on that blessing, on that promise of God. We don't doubt any word in the Torah. We certainly don't doubt an explicit promise in the Torah. But most authorities assume that that was only relevant when Shemitah was applicable in full force. As we shall see in some... Uh, detail and sophistication as we go on, the mainstream view is that we don't have full, quote-unquote, Shemitah nowadays. It's not necessarily Midah Raisa. 
And in source number three, this is one of the commentaries on the Shulchan Aruch, so we're talking already a few hundred years ago, the Sma says in source number three, that this blessing that Hashem promised in, you know, in the Torah, that's only b'zman shayashmita v'yoel noheg min Torah. Only if we have the full shmita midoraisa, so then we could also count on the full promise of Hashem, right? It has the full backing and promise. It's even better than the Federal Reserve. Who knows what the dollar is going to be worth? So, you know, it's even better than that. Hashem says you can take it to the bank. It's on me. But that's only when you have a full shmita, and we do not have the full complement of shmita. There are many things in our unbroken and unredeemed world that are not as ideal as the Torah's vision. Uh, would have it, and we, we daven and we pine for that uh, fulfillment of the ultimate vision of the Torah. But one of the things which is less than perfect, again, we were talking about at the outset of the year, Baruch Hashem, at least we get to be in Eretz Yisrael, and this is not just a hypothetical, and not just a theoretical, but again, the challenges, but the bracha of actually getting to live out a mitzvah in the Torah, that for most of Jewish history, most of Jews just thought of it as some weird curiosity. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, we get to actually live that, all true, but it's not it's still not, even that, as, as grateful as we should be for the opportunities we have the coming year, it's not what fully, fully what the Torah would have wanted. Now, there, that's disappointing, but I'll just let you in on a secret. There's a good part of that, because it won't be as strict as it might have been otherwise. And we'll, we'll, we'll get to that not only today, but in Mirza Hashem, uh, there'll be various leniencies uh, in next week's year as well that are all based on the fact. So it's like it's the same thing you've been teaching your children their whole lives, right? With greater responsibility comes a greater privilege. So Shemitah is, I, I, I'm not getting good at numbers. I don't know if we have 50% Shemitah now, 60% Shemitah, 70% Shemitah. We don't have 100% Shemitah. We don't get all the privilege of that, but the good news is Hashem proportionally, dis, the Torah discounts a little bit of the responsibilities as well. It's not as strict as it would have been otherwise. So with all of that as both a hashkafic and a, a halachic background, I think we're really now ready uh, for the, the question of, very simply, whether it was in the time of the Torah or more relevant for us now, what are we supposed to do? Shemitah prohibits many of the... Sorry, one second. I didn't hear what you said, but just one second. Shemitah doesn't allow us to do significant amounts of work. As we are going to see, it's going to have all sorts of impacts on the food that we do have. What are the options? In the Torah's vision, and then of course translating it into our contemporary world, if you're not supposed to work during the Shemitah year, you're supposed to let it lie fallow. We saw four possible theories as to why, but that's the fact. What did the Torah expect you to do, especially now that we've just said that the supernatural bracha that had been promised is not relevant anymore? Well, now we're stuck. We may only have 50%, 60% Shemitah, but if we don't have the promise of the windfall, so what are we supposed to do? Yes, you had a question. I'm just wondering why it's not there. Ah, excellent. So we're going to probably, in one of the sources, I can't remember which one, but... I'll, uh, I'll mention it briefly then, but I'll tell you now very quickly, not this past Shabbos, but the Shabbos before, I gave a full hour shear uh, to the men just on that one question. What was the question? Why would Shemitah nowadays not be from the Torah? And the answer is it's a machlokas, which we'll get to, but the, the most common reason given for the opinion, which is the most commonly accepted opinion, that Shemitah is not Midaraisa now, is because Shemitah is linked to Yovel, as it is in the Torah, and Yovel, the Pasuk in Parshas Bahar, says you need kol yoshiveha aleha. Whether that means literally every Jew living in the land of Israel, or at least 50%, or 50.1% of the Jews. And is it enough just demographically to see, and we're very close, if not there already, which is an incredible thing for the first time in, I don't know how many, 1,000, 2,000 years, that most of the world Jewry might live in Israel. But it's not clear that that will change the halacha either, because it might be that we need to identify 
every one of the 12 Shvatim. But either way, Yovel, because of a technicality, is not the Raisa anymore, that everyone agrees. And then it's a debate, but many people think since Shemitah is linked to Yovel, Yovel, Shemitah would also only be rabbinic now. Okay, I'm going to get back to that probably, but it's good that you asked, and I'm happy to have clarified it now. Yes? Also a fantastic question. Way beyond the scope of what we'll have time for, but one of the things which is mentioned as a leniency, again, it's, you know, we're not hiding it, the, the Rabbanim have integrity, there's transparency, is we're not 100% sure we know it's the right year. We think we know, and already going back to the Rambam and others, they were doing calculations. But, and it's not like one of those things where like, can you imagine if like, yeah, in Ramah B'Shemesh they think next year is Shemitah, you know, but in B'nai Brak they think it's in two years, you know, and in Tinek, you know, like that would be beyond, like thank God this is not like an Ashkenazi Sfari thing, you know, None of us are 100% sure, but there aren't multiple opinions nowadays. Everyone who cares at all thinks that this coming year is Shemitah. Do we know 100%? No, it's possible we don't. And that is sometimes mentioned as a reason that we can be lenient in some cases. That's a very, very on point and fair question. Okay? So, what are we supposed to do? What were they going to do in the time of the Torah? And especially nowadays when we don't have this supernatural bracha, you know, the wind is not at our back because we don't have that promise. So now we're heading into, the wind is not at our back, the wind's in our face. What are we supposed to do? How are we going to live? How are we going to survive? So the uh, first, um, well, let me make the problem more difficult first. Um, <laughs> and that is that from the Torah's perspective, Mida Orisa, this is very, very relevant, not only historically for you to understand, but this is absolutely going to be practical. This is one of the things that's going to cause the most challenges for all of us in the coming year. From the Torah's perspective, you can't work in the seventh year, but anything that had been planted beforehand and grows then on its own, totally permissible to eat. Totally permissible. In fact, not only permissible, it might be a mitzvah, there's kedusha attached to it. Nevertheless, the problem is, in source number four, the Rambam tells us, and the Rambam is basing himself on earlier sources, that the Chachamim made a special rabbinic um, prohibition, an Isr de Rabbanon, called Isur Svichin. Svichim, you see that underlying in source number four. Svichim means like the aftergrowth, things that grew on their own. They weren't planted during the seventh year, but they grew during the seventh year. They've been planted either deliberately beforehand or maybe they were just left over seed in the field that you didn't even know about. It grew in the seventh year. That presumably was a lot of what they were relying on once upon a time. Says the Rambam, in many, not all, as we shall see in a moment, in many cases, that became prohibited mirabanan. Again, mirabanan meaning go back right to the time of the Gemara. Why? So the Rambam explains. Because even though in theory, if it grew on its own, it should be permissible. But what's to, you know, unfortunately there were always, you know, you forgive me for using this example, but it's just so painful. Uh, and it drives the point home that unfortunately there's always been unscrupulous people in our own community. Um, if we could have people, you know, trying to outsmart all sorts of authorities with fake COVID cards and vaccination cards. Um, so it's not a shock that Long, long time ago, there were Jews trying to outsmart the rabbis and sneaking and planting during Shemitah. And then when it would grow, they'd say, oh, no, no, that's something that just happened by itself, or that grew. So I have no way of knowing, and neither would any of you, how common was that a problem? Is that just the rabbis being neurotic, or they had really good reason to be concerned? We trust that they had good reason. If they made a prohibition, presumably they had a good reason to do so. And therefore, the Rambam says, we're so worried about that problem that anything that people typically would plant from year to year, and therefore there's a good chance they might try to 
some, some unscrupulous, dishonest farmer might try to sneak in. And by the way, it's not just that it's a problem for him. It could be a problem for other people who unwittingly buy from him. So it could be a societal problem. It's not, it's not just his personal uh, conscience that he's uh, compromising. It could impact other people. So the Chachamim made a rule, says the Rambam, that anything that grows in the seventh year will be prohibited anyway, mirabanan. Now, anything is not anything, thankfully, or else we'd really be in trouble. Because at least in this point, um, the Rambam continues and he says clearly that we distinguish between things like vegetables as opposed to fruit. We know you plant a fruit tree once, you know, the apples come or whatever comes, and then you don't plant it again. The next season, more apples hopefully come, or more kumquats come, or more limonim or rimonim or whatever come. So says the Rambam, because you don't plant fruit trees regularly, this prohibition was never made on fruit. We weren't worried about people sneaking in and planting a fruit tree. Anyway, if you planted it right in the Shemitah year, it would be early. You couldn't eat it anyway. So we're only worried, says the Rambam, about other things such as vegetables uh, and grains. Okay, so now that I've made the problem worse, now let's see how we'll make it better. Okay, so now we have all the Torah prohibitions, but we also have this rabbinic prohibition that's going to apply to vegetables. So even if you're on your low-carb diet and you want to avoid the grains, but all those salads you enjoy, we have the Israsichim. So fruit salad, you know, it's a lot this year. We can, you know, that's not a problem. But we have this rabbinic prohibition for everything else, even that grows in the seventh year. So now that we've deepened the problem, what are the options? So the first option, which when it's applicable as an agricultural reality, is obviously the easiest and the best, is to use produce that grew in the sixth year. Right? Shemitah is the seventh year. That's the issue. And they got plenty to eat. But if it grew in the sixth year, right, things don't go bad right away. Grain, for example, right? grain, grain is very easy. Right? Grain's more of an issue maybe in the eighth year, because then we're trying to use things that grew in the, but there's plenty, grain lasts a long time, it can be stored. So we, you know, it shouldn't be a problem to go to, uh, you know, anywhere and get, you know, bread or grain that grew in the sixth year. Okay, that's an easy, that, that's an easy solution. The issue is, and again, I don't want to belabor the point because it'll get too complicated, but I'll just mention it briefly because it will be relevant when you go into your favorite grocery store next year. Um, and that is, there's a big discussion in the halacha, again, way too complicated to get into all the details, but there's a big discussion. How do you determine what year the grain is? I'll give you a simple example. For most things in our life, let's just use secular for a moment, we think of what's the year? January to December. Okay, but if you have any... You know, school-age children, you know, there's a different thing called the academic year. There's financial years, right? There's different years for different parts of our life. It's the same thing in halacha. There's huge discussions within each category of agricultural produce. When do we determine what has to have happened in year X for it to be that year? So, for example, um, the easiest and most lenient thing is fruit. So the Gemara says that fruit goes by when it first begins to bloom. Even the first little bud of something on the tree. So if that happens in the sixth year, even though most of the growth happened in the seventh year. But halachli, that's a six-year fruit. Okay, that's very helpful. And, that, and because of that, the truth of the matter is that most of next year, Shemitah will not be relevant to the fruit you see in the store. Because most of the fruit that you see in the store next year, in the beginning of next year, even if it was picked in the seventh year, but had already started growing now or in the last few months, it's because six-year fruit. Shemitah does not become challenging with fruit until approximately Pesach next year, approximately. Okay? That, on the other hand, grain, different definition. A third of growth. So if a third of growth happened already this year, you're good. And as we said, grain is relatively easy because it can store for a while. 
But if a, gra- if a grain only grew a quarter this year, and then it's still growing even up to a third in now after Rosh Hashanah, now grain is potentially a problem. It won't be practically a problem this year, but it will have the challenges of Shemitah when it wants to go to market next year. And then, vegetables are the most strict. It's the second time we've had the most kumra by vegetables. We have the rabbinic prohibition of anything that just grew on its own, and a second prohibition about vegetables is, according to the Gemara, vegetables go by whenever you picked it. So until Arab Rosh Hashanah, let's say, to make it simple, if I picked the cucumber or whatever, it's fine. You can eat it and there's no issues. But even if it 95, 98% grew in the sixth year, but it got picked at any point after this Rosh Hashanah, it's a Shemitah produce, and we have the rabbinic prohibition now to make our lives blessedly complicated. Okay, so I'm just pointing it out without getting into all the details, and if you, the good news is, I'll say this probably more than once, the good news is even whatever is confusing, which I'm hoping, again, I told you for those who uh, came in a minute too late, I'm not making it complicated. It is complicated. I'm trying to make it a little less complicated. But the good news is, even if you get a, a little bit confused, virtually every grocery store is one of the benefits of living in a community like ours, the produce will be labeled. I'm just, ho- hopefully in the back of your mind, you'll remember some of the stuff we're learning, and therefore you'll, it'll be easier for you to comprehend. And whether it's me or anyone else, when you ask, if you have Shilas, you'll also be able to ask Shilas with a little bit more uh, background knowledge. So don't, you don't have to, if you don't remember all those details, it's okay. I'm just pointing out that that, in theory, is one easy solution, which is any produce that is defined as a six-year produce, he said, hey, now we're set. That's, that's an easy one. Okay? Just not always clear if it's a six-year produce or not. But if it's a six-year produce, that's the easiest problem, easiest solution, excuse me, halavai. Now let's spend a good part of the rest of today's year discussing what is at the same time the most widely accepted solution and at the same time, perhaps uh, paradoxically, by far the most controversial solution, and that is what's known as the heter mechira. Okay, the Heter Mechira, just to give a simplistic headline, and then we'll get into the actual meat and bones uh, of it, is roughly, roughly, roughly speaking, like selling your chametz. It's a legal loophole, but at least according to those postkim who defend it, it is 100% legal. And as we will discuss, some of the greatest gedolim going back to the 1800s have advocated uh, for the solution which involves a legal loophole of the Jewish farmers selling, at least on paper, selling their farms to the non-Jews. And the proponents of this solution suggest that not only is it mutter to do that, to sell land in Eretz Yisrael to non-Jews for this purpose, but they also believe, if you accept this, again, we're going to unpack all this in a minute, I'm just giving you the headline now. They also believe not only is it permissible, but it's more importantly for our purposes, effective to completely... Um, detach any of that produce from any of the requirements and stringencies of Truma, and Maestras, and excuse me, and Shemitah. So if we assume that this is permitted and effective, then even if the produce is growing in Eretz Yisrael in the seventh year, it won't have any of the sanctity and requirements of Shemitah because it was a farm owned by a, Jew, by a non-Jew. Right? Just like the Chometz might still be sitting in your cupboard, but because you sold it through the rabbi to the non-Jew on Pesach, we all hope we all went to sleep at night on Pesach, not worried that we were violating a Torah prohibition. Yes, Kate. Uh, quick question. So, if that is the case, which I understand is pretty acceptable, wouldn't that land, would that farm, have to be sold in the sixth year? Yes. Yes. No. The, the Rabbanu Harashid is going to do it before Rosh Hashanah this year. Absolutely. Right. I don't exactly. I'm not involved. I don't know exactly the date they do it. Yes, but absolutely, it would have to be in the sixth year. Time in the sixth 
I, I assume that just like the rabbi does the Mechiris comments on Arab Pesach, I assume that this is pretty close to Rosh Hashanah. Um, I haven't been invited to the sale yet. Uh, I have to talk to Rabbi Yosef about that. <laughs> but, um, but yes, they do it right before Rosh Hashanah, as far as I'm aware. Yes, the answer. But it certainly has to be done in the sixth year. Again, how acceptable it is and what the issues are, we're going to get to in a minute. But those who advocate it, which includes, among others, the, the Rabbin Harashit, the chief rabbinate, yes, of course, they have to do it before Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah of the seventh year, just like we do it before Pesach. Exactly. That's correct. Yes. Yes, it would affect lots of things. Yes, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll discuss. Uh, again, I don't know if I'll get to every permutation, but yes, we're, those issues I want to unpack now. So let's discuss, because this is again one of the single most passionate, controversial, halakhic issues in the last hundred plus years. Uh, that's not an exaggeration. Uh, this has been debated with incredible passion since the late 1800s. Um, and, you know, people, you know, get exhausted, but this they haven't gotten fully exhausted of debating about yet. Uh, it's not as passionate as it used to be because you can only keep up, you know, it's like anything, you know, you can only be passionately angry for so long, but you can hold a grudge forever. Um, exactly, that's also a good point. So we, get, so we get to get our anger back. Right. So what are the things I want to do in the next 10, 15 minutes uh, in all seriousness, is not only educate you, just so you should be informed and understand the issues, but most importantly, this is a pet peeve of mine in other areas as well, but it certainly rears its head in Shemitah, and that is the first and most important thing you need to realize is, this is a machloket in halacha, l'shem shamayim. This is not about politics, it's not about whether you're a Zionist or a Haredi, you do say halal yom atzmut, you don't say halal yom your son is going to go to the army, he's not going to go to the army, those are all really, really important questions. And there is some social overlap with who relies on the Hatimir and who doesn't. But they're not at all really related. This is a, as bona fide and genuine as a halachic debate as any at all. And the Rabbanim on both sides of the issue are not doing this because of whatever their political association is. They genuinely believe that this is the right halacha, either good or bad. And therefore, not only should we treat both sides uh, with, of the machlokas with respect, therefore I hope whichever personal practice your family has Whoever has a different practice should equally uh, be respected. So what do the advocates of the Heter Mechira believe? And then let's discuss, because we're going to give a fair time to both sides, what do the people who don't rely on the Heter Mechira, why do they think that it shouldn't work? As somebody once said to me, well, if everyone relies on Mechira's Chametz, why shouldn't we rely on this? That's not an intelligent question, but it's a fair question. The answer, the reason it's not intelligent is because there's lots of differences. <laughs> because two things look the same doesn't mean they are the same. And this is really, really complicated. So what do the advocates, and again, when I say advocates, it's most widely, you know, in 2020, 21, 22, most people just think, oh, this was Rav Cook's thing. The answer is yes and no. Rav Cook did support it, and that's why the chief rabbinet has supported it ever since his day. But he didn't come up with it. I, if I'm not mistaken, I have a book at home that's the whole history of it. I didn't reread it yesterday, so I could be off. I don't want to get too specific in the dates and the, in the time. But it was the second. It, he wasn't even in the first initial iteration of the Heter. It goes back to the greatest. There weren't really that many big rabbinim in Eretz Yisrael at the time. But when the first Chalutzim were coming in the 1800s, they were sending the Shilas back to Europe. And the greatest, greatest gedolim in Europe were discussing in this, eventually somebody named Rav Yitzchukachonan Specter was considered the Gadol Hador in Lithuania. He approved of the, of, of the Heter. When Rav Cook came there to Israel, it was already being done based on those gedolim. Rav Cook investigated it, and based on various arguments, he accepted it, modified it, etc. But it predates Rav Cook, it postdates Rav Cook, Rav Shlomo Zaman Orbach, Rav Avadji Yosef, Rav Yitzchuk Yosef, totally support the Heter Mechira. So it's not like, you know, just, oh, you're the Tamil Chachamim, the serious people don't, and 
It's, again, as I say, this is not about whether you wave a flag or not. This is a major, major machloket. So what, again, now that I've hopefully got your attention, what do the proponents of the heter claim? So what they claim is follows. And number one, this gets back to the question you asked me before, which is they say number one is we have to take a deep breath. This is an important mitzvah. We take it very seriously. But Lamaisa, we're only dealing with a rabbinic issue. And this, I had mentioned outside before, but I'm alluding now, the Rambam seems to say this, uh, it seems to be the way, the Rambam says in source number five, that Shvit and Shvit Asksafim, which we're not going to discuss now about canceling debts, nowadays it's all Midivrehem, it's all rabbinic, because as you see earlier in source number five, he connects it to Yovel. So again, without getting, again, I literally gave an hour sheer on that question alone. So now I gave 15 seconds to it. Not exactly doing it justice. But if you assume, which is the majority view, Accepted by, just so that we're you know, all on the same page, accepted by both Rav Kook and the Chazonish. The Shemitah nowadays is only rabbinic. Based on a majority view, I just gave you the Rambam, but many other Rishonim who say that. So there may be more leniencies that are possible. Again, we don't have the big bracha, the promise that Hashem gave us, but we also get a huge possible leniency. Okay, that's number one. Number two, and here comes the point which you, you asked me about a few moments ago, uh, and let's mention it now specifically, and that is what the Rambam says in source number six. The Rambam is poskening or discussing a major, major debate which appears in a number of places in the Shas. Let's say a non-Jew, nothing to do with Shemitah, nothing to do with the chief rabbinate, a non-Jew buys, you know, I was, in, I was in the north on Friday and Shabbos, right? You see a lot of Arab villages there, right? A lot of farms that are not Jewishly owned. Right? But that's Eretz Yisrael as much as uh, you know, any other city in Eretz Yisrael. A non-Jew, Mustafa is the farmer and he owns land. Does that land have Kedusha at Eretz Yisrael? You ask, assuming that you know, vegetables are kosher, they're just as kosher if Mustafa farmed them as or if I farmed them. Do you have to take Shumos and Maestros? Do you have to worry about all those things? A non-Jewishly owned farm? That's a major machlokas. In the Gemara. In the Gemara it's a machlokas. So how do we paskin in that question? So the Rambam actually in source number five is act, excuse me in uh, source number six is actually strict. Akum shakana karka beretz Yisrael lohif Mustafa buying land, you know, a normal real estate sale. He buys it from Avram and therefore Ruvain or whoever. And now you know the, the, farm, the, the Arab farmer whoever owns the land. The Rambam says it's still kadosh. However, many posts can point out that was only if Shemitah was Doraita. But if Shemitah is Darabonon, which we have now said it is, and the Rambam, among others, seems to feel that way, we actually would paskin, if non-Jews own land, it does exempt us from treating it with Kedusha. So, if we assume that, if a non-Jew, not with a legal fictional sale with a chief rabbinate, but an actual sale, a Jew in the a Jew in the Beit Shan sells to an Arab in the Beit Shan, and now the Arab owns the land. If we assume that nowadays, because is the Rabbanan, that that sale would negate the need to treat it for Shemitah, uh, for kedusha and the like, now the question is, would that even be true for the legal sale of the Shemitah that the chief rabbit is going to do? One a final point on this, and this is a very very important point. It actually to some extent, distinguishes what has for a while been known as Minag Yerushalayim versus Minag Bnei Brak. And that is sources number seven and eight. We were discussing just the last few moments, what if, you know, hopefully they're good neighbors, they live in peace, Mustafa and Moshe living in the Beit Shan or wherever, uh, in the Galil, and he sells them the land. Okay, really, Moshe shouldn't have sold them the land, but that's a different problem. But he did, or somehow Mustafa got a hold of the land. He got it from the Turks who got it from the... Uh, you know, he, he has the land. 
So even if you assume that it doesn't matter, it shouldn't affect the Kedusha, it's still Shemitah, comes along none other than Rav Yosef Karo, author of the Shulchan Aruch, and you know, one of the most dominant influences, not only in Halacha period, but certainly dominant in Halacha in Eretz Yisrael, because he eventually came uh, to Tzfat, um, and lived in Eretz Yisrael for the rest of his life. So he says in source number 7, even those who want to be strict only referred to it when a Jew would buy back the land. In other words, we didn't catch this at first. Mustafa owns the land. Then Moshe, you know, he makes a little bit of money, he invested in high tech, his cousin who works in Tel Aviv told him about a startup, and he put a, some shekel in, and now all of a sudden he's got some cash. He wants to go buy back the farm from Mustafa. Says the Beit Yosef, says Rabbi Yosef Karo. So now that was the debate in the Gemara. If the Jew buys it back, do we view that? Does it get its Kedusha back? Because now it's not owned by an Arab, it's owned by a Jew. But says the Beit Yosef in source number 7, but when the non-Jew still owns the land, he says that wasn't even a debate in the Gemara. And that's certainly not a debate in the Ramam. He thinks it's clear when Mustafa owns the land, of course there's no Kedusha. The only question was if Maishi buys it back, do we view that you know, you know, as, you know, let's say, I don't know, pre-Yehoshua, some uh, Jew had just gone into Canaan and bought a field. Would that have made all of a sudden the land Kadosh? No, Right? An individual grabbing a piece of land doesn't turn it into Eretz Yisrael. You need what's called Kibush Rabin, right? The Jewish army and the Jewish government took control. An individual, Maishi, buying it back, can he resuscitate, bring back the Kedusha? That's a debate. But as long as it's in the hands of the Arab, in the hands of the non-Jew, says the Beit Yosef, there is no Kedusha. So first of all, that's relevant if you're living up where in the north, or certainly a few hundred years ago in Sfat, when there was, you know, 30 people combined and everyone was eating each other's produce, Jew and non-Jew, said the Beit Yosef, and he, for him this was real, this was halakha lamaisa. In the seventh, you don't have to take trumas and maisas if you go to Mustafa's farm. You don't have to worry about Shemitah if you get from Mustafa's farm. However, that's the Beit Yosef. And for hundreds of years, that was universal minhag Eretz Yisrael. But there was a minority view, a dissenting view, of a contemporary, we're going back 100 years, four or 500 years now, there was a dissenting view in source number 8, somebody known as the Maharit, and his father the Mabit, the dynamic father-son duo, um, you know, to tangle with Rav Yosef Karo, you needed, you know, two, it was a two-on-one, but even then it was just fair. Um, so the Mabit and the Maharit, they disagree, and they say, what are you talking about? The Machloket about um, Mustafa's farm doesn't just apply if the Jew would buy it back, that didn't appear, no, at any time a non-Jew owns land, who said it loses its Kedusha? Because Mustafa bought a farm, it's not, it's not the same. It's Abraham Avinu's land. It's the land Hashem promised us. Hashem gave it Kedusha. Just because Mustafa bought a, you know, a few dunam, it loses its Kedusha. So he, the Mari, disagreed. He says, no, it doesn't matter if Mustafa owns the land. Now at the time and for hundreds of years, he was respected. In the Beis Medrash they studied it, but it wasn't accepted. It's a huge, huge, if you, it's a huge chumrah. Yosef Kara was a huge leniency. Selling the land to a non-Jew detaches it from any kedusha. No, no, no requirements. And he said, no, it still has requirements. What changed? What changed, perhaps, was in the 20th century, the Chazonish decided to be machmer for this opinion. And therefore, it's only in the 20th century and more recently that it became, the Chazanish, who is obviously his primarily sphere, primary sphere of influence, was B'nai Brak. So for the last few decades, in the Chazanish's sphere of influence, which started off only in B'nai Brak and has definitely expanded, as we all know, 
Um, so it was known as Minag Chazanish or Minag Bnei Brak. Because, but in, Eretz, but in Yerushalayim, for hundreds of years, I don't mean just like you know the modern people in, in Yerushalayim. I mean the Yerushalmim. They always followed this leniency. Because this was Rabbi Yosef Karo, and for hundreds of years, this was Menegar Yisrael, and okay, the Chazanish wants to have a Chumrah, go live in Menebrak if you want that. But we, you know, we have hundreds of years of Mesorah, we're lenient. Again, the Chazanish's influence has, has expanded, and now you, you will find people who are Machmir. But why is this relevant, of course? Because that was discussing a re, quote-unquote real sale between Maishi and Mustafa in the Galil. If you think that it doesn't help, and that even when Mustafa owns the land, you want to be Machmir like the Chazanish, then it still has Kedusha, then certainly a fictional legal sale between the chief rabbinate doesn't help. That can't be better than an actual sale. So getting back so we don't lose train of thought, I said, the people who advocate for this heter mechira, what are they basing themselves on? Not only that it's rabbinic, but also that it would work. Now, why does it work? Well, if you assume that a quote-unquote real sale would work between Maishi and Mustafa, then we're going to argue that our quote-unquote legal loophole sale of the rabbi and Mustafa should work as well. And again, it's debatable, but it's certainly on legitimate, uh, a legitimate, uh, significant footing. So what are the objections then? So the answer is very simple. Number one is, potentially, you hold the Shemitah is not only Durabanan, you hold Shemitah is Doraita nowadays. It's a minority view, but it exists. Maybe I have to be concerned about that. And if Shemitah is in full force, then I can't play any games. Secondly, we just saw the Chazonish, the Mabit, who said the sale works. Who said the sale works? Maybe even if a non-Jew owns the land, it doesn't work. And then the Chazunish and others like him who were critical of the sale gave more criticism of the sale. First of all, halachically, even if it would work, who said you're allowed to do it? I alluded to this a few minutes ago. Are you or I or any of us allowed to sell land to a non-Jew in Eretz Yisrael? This is politically incorrect. And again, we certainly would, uh, not, uh, would be very illegal and immoral outside of Israel. But, but there's a posuk in the Chumash. So, source number nine, the Gemara quotes, Lo Sechaneim, Devarim, Perek Zion. The Gemara says, Lo Sechaneim, what does that mean? Well, it means three things. One of the things it means is, Lo Titenlem, Chaniyah Bakarka. A Jew is prohibited from selling land, or giving, let alone giving, but even selling land, to a non-Jew in Eretz Yisrael. Hashem gave it to us. We're not allowed to give it away. It's called Lo Sechaneim. Taking money for it doesn't make it any better. <laughs> Maybe it makes it worse. It doesn't make it better. You can't give away land. And therefore, for example, in one of the great lines of all time, in source number 10, the famous Nitziv, the famous Nitziv of Valojan, in the 1800s, he was one of those, I mentioned that the, the heter goes back to the 1800s. And there were big rabbis advocating, but there were equally big rabbis who were against it even in the 1800s, one of which was the Nitziv, which, by the way, is one of the many proofs that this is not really a political issue, because in the 1800s, the Nitziv was one of the leaders of the nascent Zionist Chovetzion movement. And yet he felt that the, that the mechira was not good. Why? He says, because you're violating an Isr do right to the cell. Maybe it would work if it was allowed, but it's not allowed. And he has a great line in source number 10. He says, the people who are advocating the sale, they're boreach mehaze'ev ari. They're running away from the wolf into the mouth of the lion. I wouldn't want to be bitten by either, but I guess the assumption is that it would be worse to go to a lion. We might say, if we were doing this idiomatically now, you're going from the frying pan into the fire. You're running away to solve the problems of truma and maisa, excuse me, of a shemitah, which are only rabbinic nowadays, according to most people. And what's your solution to avoid a rabbinic problem? I'll violate it, Mr. and sell land to a guy. You're running away from the fox right into the mouth of the lion. Right? You know, the rabbis aren't always boring. Right? Sometimes I like to spice it up a little bit. 
Right? So who said it's even allowed? Then there were many, in previous iterations of Shemitah, there were many practical uh, criticisms. For example, we know in Israel, if you've bought your home, you know your house has to be registered in the Tabo, the land registry. Well, when the rabbi sells those thousands and thousands of dunam of Jewish farmers' land to Mustafa, in the Tabo they're changing it for the year that now all of a sudden that's all owned by the Arab? If the sale is not being done in a way that's consistent with secular law, who said it's even good halakhically? Even in theory it could be good. Doesn't a halakhic sale also have to correspond to, to legal law? Plus, you think all those farmers, all those non-Orthodox, non-from farmers, you think they're really selling it? You think they really have what's called gemira dot? They really have intent to sell? Let's be honest, right? That's a major challenge for every one of us when we sell our chametz, right? If you don't have, a, if you're not selling it with a full heart, it doesn't matter how many times the rabbi lifts up the pen, right? It's not the rabbi who's doing the job. First, it has to come from you. You have to sincerely be selling. That's a basis of any transaction. It can't be a joke. You think it's really serious? So there are many, many, many criticisms against the Hatta leveled in good faith for the most part, uh, and sincerely. So what are the people who advocate the Hatemachir respond? So again, a lot of the halakhic arguments we already mentioned. Um, when it comes to this prohibition of lo techanem, so a number of posts coming here, I, I felt I couldn't give a shir like this without quoting at least one thing from Rav Kook. And source number 12 is a tshuva from Rav Kook. And he points out, and he, he's not the only one, and there's even more than what he says, he points out that there are many reasons to think that the prohibition of lo techanem does not apply to when the rabbin sells the land to Mustafa. Again, Rav Kook is not denying that there's a prohibition, a politically incorrect prohibition. Rav Kook is not denying that. But who said it applies here? So for example, one of the arguments Rav Kook makes is, maybe that prohibition only applies if you're selling to someone who's an actual pagan or idolater. We know for all of their uh, deficiencies, Islam is not idolatry. Right? They believe in the same one God that we do. We just have a disagreement about who the best Navi was. But it's not like, you know, Christianity is more complicated uh, with what they have going on there. But Muslims, a mosque is not considered based on what is according to most poskim. That's one argument. The second argument of Koch says, which he's been very passionate about, is the idea of Lotechanim was all about helping strengthen the non Jewish presence in the land of Israel vis-a-vis the Jewish presence. And that's a problem, because we're supposed to be strengthening the Jewish presence. But says of Koch, if you have a Machira, which is being done just for the opposite, Right? Those farmers, especially in the 1800s, they were worried, not only were they going to die, which would have been bad enough, but the whole Jewish yeshuv was going to fall apart. They couldn't, the economy, and it's not, it's clearly, many people have tr- argued, is it really true now, would, the, would, would all of Israel fall apart if the, we had no agriculture? You know, with, with the startup economy? The answer is no, probably wouldn't. But it would, it's not simple. I'm not just saying for the lives of those farmers, that's obvious. I mean, even for the Israeli economy. Again, I'm not an economist, I don't know exactly the numbers. It's not as dependent on the agriculture as it was once. But it's still not nothing. But certainly in the original argument, says Rav Kook, we're doing this Heter Mechira not to help the non-Jews get a better foothold in Eretz Yisrael. Literally the opposite. 180 degrees the opposite. We're doing it to strengthen the Jewish Yeshuv. It's the Tovah Teinu. So who said there's a prohibition? Now, you could argue with that. And in source number 13, the Chazanish did argue with that. And this is a major point of dispute. L'shem Shamayim. So there are many halachic arguments back and forth. But I want to just say, for those who either themselves are going to rely on the Hatta in this room, or in case you get invited to a relative or a friend who relies on it, not only are there good halachic defenses, more importantly for our purposes, and I think credit goes, sometimes in life you have to be mature enough to realize that sometimes your biggest critics are at, or, you know, are, uh, you know, people who are against you, but sometimes they make good points. And even if you're going to disagree with their conclusion, 
you can make tikkunim, you can make improvements. And whether it was the Chazanish or some of his supporters, they had some very legitimate criticisms going back 50, 60, 70 years in terms of the way the Mechira was being implemented on a practical level. Even if you held it theoretically, it worked. But what about the Tabo issue we mentioned, the farmers, different things. So you should know, already going back to, um, I want to get the year right, 1979. Just in case you're wondering, I was born. Uh, I was born then, I was a little kid, first grade, I think, in 1979. Uh, in 1979, the Knesset passed a law that land sold as part of the Hetem Mechira. Legally, it's on the books as much as any other law in the Knesset in the state of Israel. does not need to be registered by the Tabo. So it's a completely secularly binding sale now. But that was a, that's an improvement that goes back 40 years. But before that, it wasn't there. So, okay, that's a good impro- improvement. Two Shemitah cycles ago, Rav Weitman, some of you may know the name, Rav Weitman is currently uh, the Rav of Alon Shvut, but more importantly and more well-known for many years, he's the Rav, the Posek of Tenuva. So if you like milk, you're relying on Rav, uh, Rav Weitman. Uh, he's the biggest milk Posek in, in all of Israel. And he was tasked already two Shemitah cycles ago by the chief rabbinate to make all sorts of improvements practically in implementation of the Hatem Mechira. And they have done that. So for, I, I don't have time now to get into all the details, but there have been many, many things. Just I'll give you one example. It's true. Once upon a time, the chief rabbinate, decided we're going to act on behalf of any farmer who's going to, unfortunately, because they're not religious or whatever, they're going to farm anyway. We're going to just find a nice, good Arab. We're going to make the mechira with him. So it's legitimate to say, but what about all the farmers? They didn't, they didn't take it. Even if they know about it, they're not taking it seriously. So already two cycles ago, if I'm not mistaken, it's, you know, it's not even so recent already, the chief rabbi goes to all the farmers. They sit with them. They show them the document. They explain it to them. If you, wanna, if you want your farm to be part of the Hatem Mechira, this is what it means. Now, can we know that what's really, really in their hearts? Of course, you can never know. Just like I don't know what's in your heart when I sell your chametz. But it was, a, it was a fair criticism, and there was major improvements that were made. More to say even on this topic, I'm just pointing out if people don't rely on the Hatem Mechira, I think that's totally legitimate. But I totally understand, and I think it's very, very legitimate that people do. Just as a side point, uh, I just heard recently, I didn't know this as clearly as I recently found out, somebody who many of us know of and we've heard of, many of our children use his Sfarim, Rav Ezra Malamid, the author of Pinini Halacha, the single most popular Halacha sefer in all the state of Israel. He's a massive advocate, L'Chadchila, for the Hatem Mechira. A friend of mine who lives in the neighborhood across the street said he remembers it was either, I think it was last Shemitah cycle, Rabbi Yitzhak Yosef was speaking on Sorek in a Haredi shul, and people were complaining about the expense of vegetables that they were buying because they weren't relying on Hatem Mechira. He says, I don't know what the problem is. The Hatem Mechira is Lechachila. You can buy, rely on that. It's cheaper. I'm not saying therefore you have to listen to it. I'm not trying to convince you of it. I'm just pointing out that there are major, major poskim who advocate for the Hatem Mechira, and hopefully we have a much more informed understanding of why that might be legitimate. But you should certainly be aware, many, many poskim uh, who, who certainly have very, very significant doubts and reticence about that. To the extent that this is relevant, either if you visit the States or if, may, if you want to remember when you lived outside of Israel or if you have relatives coming, the wide consensus, I believe, of hashkacha agencies outside of Israel is not to rely on the Mechira, including the OU, who had a psak from Rav Salavechik, uh, not to uh, rely on the Mechira, not necessarily because they were convinced it wasn't legitimate, but because even if it is legitimate, it's clearly not exactly the spirit of the Torah wanted, that the farmer should be farming, but technically it's Mustafa's land and whatever. And therefore they said maybe it's legitimate in a case of dire need like you need it in Eretz Yisrael. But if you're a consumer in America, you don't need to get Jaffa oranges. Take a year off. Or you don't need things from the head of Mechira. It's not going to affect your life in the same way. And therefore, 
I'm not even discussing now whether Shemitah produce should be exported to America. That's itself a problem way beyond our scope. But I'm just pointing out to you that the wide consensus across the spectrum of Hashkacha agencies outside of Israel is to be machmir. But, okay, we, as I say, we have unique blessings, but we have unique challenges, and certainly the farmers have unique challenges living here. And therefore, in Eretz Yisrael, it is certainly, as I, I'll repeat what I said 20 minutes ago, on the one hand, this is the most widely accepted heter, and it's also the most controversial one. Okay? So, if you rely on it, or you, you know, in your, or your relatives rely on it, I, I think there's certainly what to rely, you know, to, to, that's legitimate. But I understand certainly why somebody in many communities, and, or many individuals, would prefer to be machmer. I, what I don't understand is why people demonize other people. Um, I have maybe a chutzpah question. But Allie, we, we're close. <laughs> but why, why would that be given to a U.S., to some, or chutzpah is posting, or to, to decide what should be the, the, the nascent sort of conclusion? Like that, I understand, like, I think that... So let me. I don't know if this will satisfy you, but I think I wasn't clear. So let me. Maybe, I hope this will they'll explain it to you better. Whether it's the OU or the Star K, whoever is in America, they're not telling Israel what to do. hundred percent. That would that wouldn't have been their place. What they're saying is, if you're a restaurant in New York or you have a catering facility, or you're just making, I don't know, whatever product, and you want to import some... We are not going to give you hashkacha if you're online on that, because we think there's major halakhic questions about it. Maybe if we were living in Israel, we'd feel more of an urgency to find a leniency. But in America, there's 10 other solutions for any product you would want. So why should we rely on something that's controversial? That's the mentality. Again, it's controversial even in Israel. It could be that if you had planted a Salvechik or whoever from the OU or the Star K in Israel, they would say for sure it's not good. I don't know. But their point is that we're not even taking a position on whether you should or shouldn't listen to it in Israel. We're just saying in America, if, even if somehow you, by accident or whatever, you were visiting your kids in Israel and you brought back the Jaffa orange or whatever the kids that you thought was had to Mechira, in general, that's the possible. I'm just, I'm just giving to you this point of context. The good news is we live in Israel. So, so we don't have to, it's not so practical for everyone in the room, uh, but there may be people listening to this recording who, for whom that is relevant, and I think you should be aware. I want to spend just five more minutes before we conclude to point out a second option. Okay, so the first option, or let's say, the first option, to the extent that it's, it's not a halachic issue, it's just a practical issue, is anytime you have access to produce from the sixth year, that's obviously the silver bullet. Of course, it's what we want. And when you go into Best or wherever you do your shopping or the Makolet, and if you see something that's more or less the same vegetable you would want anyway, and it says, you know, Shana Shishit, so then you buy it without thinking any more than you thought this year or last year, okay? In terms of halachic solutions, the first big one is to rely on the Sata Mechira. It's controversial, as we've seen. Ymir Tzashem next week will include as part of this year the question of, well, if I don't eat Hata Mechira, my cousins who invited me over do, or my friends who invited me, can I rely on that or not? Can I even eat the kalim as a trait? So we'll discuss that next week. And that's a very serious and very, very practical question for many of us. Okay? But that'll be next week. Though, what I want to finish today's year with is the, you could, I'll call it the other extreme, just for the sake of kind of organizing my own mind, but a second halachic approach, um, which is incredibly uh, important to understand, especially because it is the dominant approach in the Haredi world, and certainly the more common approach in places like Ramah Chemish. And that is not to rely on Hatimahira, but instead to consume what is referred to as Yavul Nachri. 
non-Jewish produce. Now, what does that mean? So why do they do that, whoever advocates for this? Number one is, because they don't hold of the Hatem Mechira, which we just spent 20 minutes discussing. They don't hold of it, and there's good reasons not to hold of it. There's going to be a third option, Otsar Bezdin, Otsar Haaretz, We're going to, that's going to be the beginning of next week's year. But there may be reasons not to hold of that. So, you're not, you know, you're not, between the rock and the hard place, what do they say? You should use produce that is from a non-Jewish uh, farm. Now, there's, that means two different things. First of all, it means imports. Israel gets all sorts of things in general, and especially during the Shemitah year, from the U.S., from Italy, places in Europe, from Jordan, places which are clearly not Eretz Israel. They're not necessarily our sworn enemies, as we're not discussing now blood money or terrorism. It's an import. Now, you're hurting the economy of Israel, maybe to some extent. You're certainly hurting, hurting the, the farmers by not buying their produce. Okay, that's, you know, that, depending on how much you're worried about the Shemitah issue, you know, everyone balances those kind of issues. But from a strictly halachic perspective, what could be wrong? The answer is nothing. That, that is the easiest halachic solution. Like everything in life, right, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. If you could avoid a problem, that's better than solving it. Who needs to have a whole complicated house of halachic cards to, with Heter Mechira? I'll just buy non-Jewish produce. So if we're talking about imported produce, the answer is yeah, you're right. That is unquestionably no problem halachically. But that's only a small percentage of the produce. Another significant part of the produce that will be sold in this neighborhood and in many others under the heading of Yivul Nachri is, land, is, is produce that comes from non-Jewish farmers in their land in Eretz Yisrael. Now, if you recall, I already mentioned, not everyone says that helps. The Chazanish doesn't even think that helps to some extent. According to Chazanish, you have much limited options. But according to the more mainstream minhag of Beis Yosef, what I called Minhag Yerushalayim, so it doesn't really matter what part of Eretz Yisrael it's in. If Mustafa owns the farm and he's selling you cucumbers or tomatoes or whatever it is, you can buy it and there's no Shemitah. I'm not going to help Ruvain, who sold his farm with the Rabbanut for Hatem Mechira, because who knows if that works. So I'll go down the block just to Mustafa, who's also in the same neighborhood in the Galil, and I'll get the cucumbers or the whatever from him. Right? So that is now not importing, which is easy. That is actually buying non-Jewish. Now, theoretically, you could disagree with that because you think, who said that that works halakhili? But again, the majority of you would think that that works halakhili. What's the problem with that? So the bigger problem with that is philosophical slash political. Uh, which is that, you know, for many people, this is f- offensive, to put it mildly, not only in terms of the, you know, hurting the Israeli farmers and the financial issue, but in previous iterations of Shemitah, a significant part of this was being bought by Arabs who, to put it mildly, don't love us. So to avoid your rabbinic prohibition of maybe, maybe, of whatever, I'm going to dump who knows how many thousands of millions of shekel into the economy of people who may not be using that money just to build daycare centers, um, you know, and, and, and the like. Um, and, you know, some people have different opinions of how much they should weigh that. Uh, what I have to tell you, honestly, seven years ago, I felt very strongly about that. Um, I, I still, you know, it makes it hard to swallow, but the more research I did, from what I understand, I hope my facts are straight, because I'm really relying on what I investigated from others, I don't know that it doesn't exist at all anymore, but it's much more of a it, it's a much smaller problem than it used to be, for the simple reason that there's significant parts of there. It's much less of the Yivul Nachri now is coming. First of all, there used to be a time where part where we were getting things from Gaza. 
for worse, but in this case for better, the situation with Gaza is so bad now, there's no mashkichim going into Gaza to make sure that the cucumbers were what they agreed to. Right? There once upon a time was things like that. In the places that are the ones that we really wouldn't want our money going to now, it's not even really happening so much anymore because it's not safe, it's not practical. Um, even if, whatever the principal issue is, it's not even, it's not even so practical. So that's, you know, that, that's one factor. They try as much as possible to go, again, imp- they try to rely on more imports, plus something which we'll mention briefly tomorrow, actually next week, is that there are all sorts of parts in southern Israel, which there's a debate whether the biblical border of Israel really includes those or not for Shemitah. So, um, you know, if I lived in lot, I might not feel so good about that. Um, but, it's not clear about places, it's really the big argument, which is really Mitzvah Ramon, that's really a machlokas, if, you, if things, even, even Mitzvah Ramon is considered in, in Israel for Shemitah or not. Um, but there are many places that you can buy, and get. And a lot of the Haredi Hashkachas, well, Dafka now grow there instead of, uh, of the Yavul Nahri. So again, they're still avoiding the problem because they think there's no Shemitah there. Or something which we'll discuss briefly next week, Hydroponics or the hothouses, what's known as the Gush Katif type of growing, where you're not growing in the ground, but something above ground. So a lot of poskum will rely on some combination of this. And I think a lot of the Haredi Hashkachos or just the Haredi market, to a large extent, uses combinations thereof. Um, now, again, I, I, I don't think it's possible if you're, you know, to, you know, to have all the food you'd want to have in this option and completely avoid Arab, you know, produce, produce as far as I'm aware. And that's, you know, a matter, I guess you could say, of personal conscience, whether you're willing to do that or not. But even if you don't want to use the Hatimahiro or any other option we'll discuss next week, this, as I say, which I'm, what I'm calling is, you know, a view that's widely practiced and certainly, certainly not only, but certainly in the Haredi world. I mean, it's not only buying, you know, from Gaza. I think that's a canard. I mean, it might have been more true once upon a time, but I think it's much, much less true now. And therefore, you know, as a matter of conscience, certainly more easy to, uh, to swallow. Uh, but again, you also don't have any of the benefits of having Shemitah produce and Kedusha uh, imbibed, uh, which we'll discuss uh, next week. So if you prefer avoiding the problem, so that whole tack is, uh, is another way to go. So I want to wrap up here. I hope you can process this. I tried so hard to make this manageable and intelligible. I hope I did a halfway decent job because I know I threw so much information out at you and I know it's complicated. So I hope you can kind of let it, you know, simmer to boil. You know, I think that works in, in learning too. Um, let it process. Let's sit. If you have any questions, please feel free to follow up with me. But just so we keep our eye on the big picture, we saw basically not only the problems, but we saw two possible solutions today, which I'll call the two extremes. On the one hand, Heter Mechira, on the one hand, avoiding any issues of Shemitah by getting non-Jewish produce or dafka hydroponics or dafka from southern parts of Israel, which may not be really Israel, even if they're Jewish farmers in the, you know, in the south. Um, next week, we'll finish up with the third option, which is called Otsar Bezdin or Otsar Arts. We'll discuss that at the beginning of next week's year, and we will discuss all the, or not all, but a basic halachos of gardening. So that will be our Shemitah part two, Emir Tzashem, next week, if you weren't scared away by today's year. Okay, thank you very much again for hosting.